Hey everyone, welcome to Hit the Apex podcast. I'm Juwad as always. Thanks for tuning in. It's the 13th of June, um, Thursday, following a controversial Canadian Grand Prix, which, you know, that's going to probably be the the bulk of the talk today is about what unfolded in Canada over the weekend, um, not the race that we all expected, and then all the fallout from it. So I'm going to sort of break it up a little bit today. I'll talk about the race itself first, um, and then talk about in depth a little bit the the punishment for Sebastian Vettel, the five-second penalty as it was um, applied, and ultimately it um, stripped him of the race win. So, yeah, five seconds. Five seconds! Me uh, just trying to channel my best Greg Murphy impersonation when he copped that five-minute penalty at Bathurst all those years ago. If only Seb went to the Portaloo like... Um, straight to the Portaloo like uh, Murph did, it would have been a bit more comical. But anyway, we'll talk a bit more about the penalty itself a little bit later. But um, the race, yeah, a controversial end to the Canadian Grand Prix. It really built up as the race went on to be somewhat of a humdinger. So we had Sebastian Vettel start on pole position. He was able to lead through most of the race. He had Lewis Hamilton tucked up behind him sort of towards the end after they made their single pit stop, both on the hard tyres, and Hamilton just had the better pace at that stage of the race. And um, in the end, as a result of that five-second penalty, uh, Hamilton was promoted into the lead. He won his fifth race of the season and seventh in total, actually, for Hamilton in Montreal. So I said last week that, you know, um, he could be the most winningest driver here in Montreal, and I think he's equaled um, Michael Schumacher's record of most wins at a particular circuit, um, and Michael's record goes to Suzuka with seven wins. So shows you how dominant Hamilton's been here throughout the years, not just when he was with Mercedes, but even at McLaren, he scored a few wins. Well, his first win, of course, back in 07 came at this particular track, so he's got a great affinity with it. But um, yeah, Sebastian, the pole man, penalised five seconds for unsafely rejoining the track at turn four, so he was under pressure from Hamilton. um, And on lap 48 is where he lost the rear end of his car at turn three, the turn three for chicane, ended up cutting across the grass and rejoined in the lead with um, nowhere for Hamilton to go really. So Hamilton had to sort of back off. Um, to his left was Vettel, to the his right was the concrete wall. So in Hamilton's situation, you've got nothing to do. Yeah, you know, this guy who has made a mistake has ended up coming back in the lead as well so even for Seb probably there was nowhere for him to go so it was one of those funny moments but I'll talk a bit more about it in depth a little later Um, but you know the penalty that was applied it was it was just in the end so you know I'll, I'll I'll drop that one right now and say that, yeah, given the circumstances and how the regulations are framed, the penalty was just for the crime. So, um, but I'll elaborate a bit on that a little later. But um, yeah, as for after that, you know, Hamilton probably took a bit too much out of his tyres, so he couldn't really pass Vettel, even though he was quite close. He was tucked up in the DRS 
zone a few times, but he kept locking his front wheels at the um, at the chicane. Sorry, not the chicane, the hairpin before the back straight. So he wasn't able to actually pass Sebastian on track. But in the end, the penalty was what got Hamilton across um, in first. So yeah, the relegation for Seb saw him drop to second, and uh, Charles Leclerc, who had a bit of a lonely race on his own in third, ended up uh, finishing third after qualifying in the same position. So it's only his second podium of the season after Bahrain, where he obviously lost that race there, but still finished on the podium. So good result for Leclerc and for Ferrari just to get a bag of points with second and third, um, even though they would have hoped for first and third. But um, when you look at the whole race, and what happened pre-race as well, um, Lewis Hamilton having a scare with the with a hydraulics leak as well. So, you know, the team did a good job to basically patch that up and make sure that it didn't cause issues for him during the race. I know Hamilton sometimes on the radio can be a bit um, frantic and make things sound like they're, they're worse than they are. But in the end, I think they did a great job to, to get back and score their... Um, you know, seventh win of the season, basically, you know, seven wins on the bounce for Mercedes, um, even though Hamilton had to have some uh, tyre management at the end of the race too. It basically, you know, it, it fell into their hands. And this is the thing, you know, when Ferrari are in that position to win a race this year so far, and then something happens, Mercedes are always there to capitalise. So even though they might not have been the quickest all weekend or something like that, you know, they still get the job done. And in the end, it's the results on the Sunday that um, ultimately uh, dictate the championship and the points that are scored on the Sunday. So the history books will show that Hamilton scored the 25 points and Sebastian Vettel scored 18 behind him. So that's going to be just left at that, I'm afraid. Um, further behind, so lonely race for Valtteri Bottas in P4. He himself said, you know, Canada's result was a bit of a wake-up call for the, for the championship overall because... Realistically, Bottas is Hamilton's only threat in this championship this year. So, yeah, I know, don't, you know, bust out the box of tissues. It's it's inevitable. Um, so let's just move on with it. Uh, but he was able to bag an extra point for faster slap. So he made a pit stop on the penultimate lap, get the soft tyres on, and was able to plug in the faster slap to score that point. So... It's been quite important this year. We've seen, you know, guys who are in that sort of lonely, having that lonely race around the fourth, fifth or sixth position to actually come in and change for soft tyres and go out and get that extra point. So for Bottas, it's quite important, obviously, because of his championship contention. So to get the extra point will help potentially or not help um, if he ends up losing this one. But um, yeah, you know, he qualified out of position. He fought with the Renaults early on in the race, with uh, Daniel Ricciardo in particular, but then ended up getting back past because Ricciardo was on a different strategy and Bottas qualified on the same tyres that the leading cars did, which was the medium, and was able to run a different strategy and finish a lonely fourth. Same story for Max Verstappen, who ended up finishing fifth? He was quali- He was, e- e- I was going to say exterminated. That sounds a bit too brutal. He was eliminated in Q2 uh, after Red Bull got it wrong on the strategy wall, 
about getting him out at the end he qualified he set a lap on the medium tire but then you know it wasn't quick enough and by the time they decided to get back out on the soft tire there was a red flag because Kevin Magnussen had crashed in um, that session so yeah they were eliminated but they started I think in 10th anyway 9th or 10th because of some penalties so and also Magnussen starting from the pit lane so it wasn't too bad in the end it wasn't that much of a fired up the grid that Verstappen had to do and given that this circuit really promotes overtaking and it's quite easy with all those long straights and three DRS zones it ended up being a piece of cake for Verstappen to get up to fifth in the end so that was the best he could do quite important as well that um, again even though he was out qualified by his teammate that um, Verstappen finished ahead of Pierre Gasly once again so you know, all that talk about Gasly being under pressure leading into this race and whatnot. Um, Gasly came and shut that all down, said that it's it's a load of BS um, and that he's talked with Helmut Marco about it. So in the end, though, Gasly finished uh, eighth. But you've got to say that, you know, sooner or later, he's going to have to start getting up there, getting those top five finishes, top six potentially as well you know not finishing down in eight so you know I mean we can talk about this for a while is that you know whether he was promoted too early stuff like that but then again you know you've got to if you're putting a punt on a guy for in the long term which you know you'd hope that they do with Gasly in this instance not like what they did with Danny Kafiat a few years ago that you know he's going to slowly ease his way into the seat and start to get those results slowly but surely so that was fourth and fourth and fifth behind them um Renault so yeah they had their best qualifying since 2010 believe it or not Suzuka 2010 when Robert Kubitzer I think was third um at the end of qualifying that really weird qualifying session where they had that typhoon that wiped it out on the on the Saturday and we had to qualify on Sunday um, good times, good times. But um, yeah, best qualifying result for Renault there. Fourth and seventh it was for Ricardo and Hulkenberg. So Ricardo pretty had a pep in his step and big smile on as well did uh, Danny Boy after that result. But, you know, they knew that they wouldn't be able to hold that position, obviously, during the race with the likes of Bottas and Verstappen behind. And in the end, you know, he was still be uh, he was still able to finish best of the rest in sixth and um, Hulkenberg seventh um, in the end so solid bag of points for Renault actually when you look at the championship so sort of said that they were a little bit nowhere after the first few races but you know they've come back to be within two points of McLaren who are sitting fourth and having that have the same power unit as well so it was only a matter of time um, before Renault were going to come on to song. So, you know, to have done that also on a circuit that um, is a power circuit, and that's where Renault have been struggling this season, it's quite impressive. So moving forward, you know, especially for the next race, which is a home race for them in France, they're going to have to really continue to show that they've made progress in this instance so great result for those guys and I'm sure you know with Ricardo having a pep in his step again and also Hulkenberg as well getting that result it's gonna only make them go forwards and whilst you know for them it was a great race for McLaren it wasn't because uh, Lando Norris had a brake failure early on in the race I 
don't even want to call it a brake failure. It's just the brakes literally just melted and made the wheel almost congeal and just break away or just sort of snapped inwards. So that was a bit of a bizarre retirement. And that's just how Montreal is. It was a bit of a scorcher of a weekend there. And um, brakes always were going to come under scrutiny, whether, you know, they were overheating. And you saw a few drivers throughout the race actually having to manage their brakes and make sure that did, didn't have um, overheating problems so um, yeah for Norris it was an unfortunate retirement again um, a bit of a unlucky spell for him of late but for Carlos Sainz actually a bit more unluckier was the fact that he was due to finish in ninth or 10th but then in the final laps he was rounded up by both Lance Stroll and Danny Kafiat so ended up getting relegated out of the points you know on one lap by two guys so you know that would have left him a bit um, a bit furious but for the other guys it was a good race because Lance Stroll qualified nowhere came back to finish ninth which equals his best result on home soil and Racing Point themselves now, his team are a Canadian team, so for their first home race as a, as the new team, solid result there. And Danny Kafiat again, just Mr. Consistency, he's been scoring points, even though it's sort of at the um, lower end of the point scoring positions, he's still picking up those results. So, you know, Toro Rosso have got themselves a solid little package this year. And a solid driver lineup with Alexander Albon there too. So unfortunately for Albon, he had to retire. There was some first lap contact involving him, Roman Grosjean, and I think Sergio Perez. So, you know, he sort of just had a bit of damage, lingering damage throughout the race. And it was an unfortunate one for Albon. So, as I said, Grosjean involved in another incident. Um, so it was... Overall, just a very poor race for Haas and, you know, off the back of Magnussen's crash and qualifying as well, um, the team did a pretty good job to actually get that chassis rebuilt and ready for the race and he started from the pit lane. He had a bit of a rant in the race about, you know, just not having any pace whatsoever and, you know, said it's not good for him, blah, 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 and the team came on the radio, or Gunter Steiner, the team boss, came on the radio and basically shut him down and said, you know, enough is enough, none of us are taking pleasure from this, so, you know, you can't just cry like a baby and say that um, you're the only one who's suffering here, so... Um, Gunter's <laughs> a bit of a personality now in the F1 world after um, we saw all those uh, behind-the-scenes stuff in the Netflix show earlier in the year, so, you know, I'm sure there'll be an uncut version coming for Season 2 of the Canadian Grand Prix um, when that comes out next year on Netflix, but yeah, for, for Haas, yeah, just another terrible race, you know, qualifying was okay, but um, again, you know, in the race they blame the tyres and uh, Gunter sort of talking about Kinder Surprise, you know, as that's how the tyres are basically dealing with them. So, you know, Haas still seem to not have got on top of those issues that they're having trying to unlock the tyres during the race. Unlocking the tyres in the race, um, they still haven't got on top of that. So if that's going to 
continue hampering them for the rest of the season, then, you know, they can sort of kiss goodbye their potential to fight for that fourth in the Constructors' Championship because, you know, Renault have come out and had a good result. Racing Point, you know, slowly but surely as well, are doing quite well, which is good to see. So, you know, Stroll just scored a couple of points there, but it it all counts. And Haas sort of dropped down to now... uh, third from last in the table so they're only three points ahead of Alfa Romeo who themselves are going through a bit of a slump but um, uh, Kimi Raikkonen saying that you know there some upgrades or something will come soon to sort of push them back um, further up and it was funny actually in the pre-race uh, where they had an interview with Kimi and said you know is the question was uh, is what's happening a hangover of the last few races or whatever and Kimi said back to him that he wishes he had a hangover so it's classic Kimi there for you but yeah you know it's still pretty tight when you look at the points so racing point on 19 points go down to alpha on 13 so you know a good result for any of them are going to turn it around and then you'd think that maybe that fourth place McLaren versus Renault seems to be where it's at at the moment unless one of those other guys decide to get into the fight too so um looking tight still in the uh in the midfield but you know there's a few teams out of form there that will need to sort of fight their way back up um sooner rather than later so before i get into talking about the penalty and um just dissecting it and everything with sebastian vettel one of the biggest questions to come out of Canada was whether Ferrari are back on song form-wise, you know. They don't seem to still have the best race pace because Lewis Hamilton was faster than Vettel at the end of that race. But qualifying-wise and also, you know, perhaps trying to get themselves into a position strategically where they can win the race, it looked a lot more positive in Montreal. So you'd just expect them to be a bit more fired up for the next race, even off the back of what happened here, to not have that win, uh, not to not be leaving Montreal with that win in the bag. So how do they attack the next few races? You know, France last year was another Mercedes domination Austria of course they had the potential to win but it went to Red Bull um, in their backyard and then Silverstone was um, victory for Vettel on that occasion so yeah you know it's going to be quite crucial um, championship wise again realistically it's Hamilton and Bottas with 29 points between those two now so Hamilton with a whole race win worth of points in his favor but can Ferrari steal back some um, or steal back some pride or salvage some pride this season and try and get a base moving for next year or even try and go on a big run and get back in the hunt? I don't think that's likely, but you know, as disappointing as it is, and this is now going into talking about the penalty, the more disappointing thing to take away from this race is just the way that in which everyone's reacted to this penalty. So Starting from the top, uh, Vettel maintained that he wasn't at fault, that he had no control of his car. He said that a blind man could see that he didn't have control of his car. But the problem is that, in the end, Vettel was found to have breached the rules and was punished accordingly. So, the fact that he rejoined the track unsafely, so even not having control of your car is deemed to be unsafe obviously it's unsafe but rejoining the track in an unsafe manner which puts 
someone else at risk of crashing or you know worse even getting injured um, that's the rule and that's on that basis that's how the steward apl- stewards applied the penalty as well so where is the issue is the issue in the rules itself you know you can't really blame the or you shouldn't blame the refs or the stewards in this instance because they're only following what's in front of them is as far as the rule book is rule book is concerned and i know that whether it's xf1 drivers or racing drivers fans on social media have been blasting the stewards for their decision it's that's not true and that shouldn't be the case i think the stewards have done what they needed to in this instance you know they could have easily dismissed it but then there'll be a certain group of people who will come back and lash out and say that should have been a penalty that should have been a penalty i'm sure you know regardless of what decision would have been made there would have been an unhappy party in it and in this in this instance there's been a huge furor because in the end it robbed us of a a classic finish you know a grandstand finish potentially um you know ferrari fans will be you know miffed because they didn't win and because they've been winless all season this should have been their victory but regardless of that the stewards made the right call as far as following the rule book is concerned even though Vettel had no control of his car he rejoined in an unsafe manner so that's the big thing about how this rule is actually written is you have to join in a safe manner whether you have control or no control of your car so you know what if at worst both cars were taken out of the race you know what happens there then then i'm sure there would have been a a penalty applied to Vettel post race for the next race you know a grid penalty or um penalty points on his license or something so you know to actually walk away with a five second penalty it's the most lenient penalty in the rule book and we saw this in monaco actually with max verstappen and there was a there that was a bone of there was a bone of contention in itself the fact that max for his unsafe release in monaco um, where he hit bottas and effectively ruined bottas's race was um only penalized five seconds where it should have been greater so you know this is where everyone i think who has stepped back and looked at this holistically has been like well the problem isn't with the stewards it isn't with the fact that Vettel took the penalty it's the consistency of the penalties and also whether the fact that a rotating panel of stewards who judge every case as a case-by-case um situation is actually the way to go i totally think i've sort of i used to really be against the whole rotating panel of stewards but i've sort of stepped back and you know this year i don't think the penalties have been too bad and even this one you know having looked at it mulled over it over a few days now um i sort of agree you know i agree with the penalty that was handed out you know at the time during the race what the only thing that really upset me was the fact that it sort of robbed us of that um good finish but that in the end is uh Vettel's fault for making a mistake so you know you can step back and summarize this whole incident as being yet again another um yet again another situation where Sebastian Vettel has made a mistake being under pressure from Lewis Hamilton and whether it was 
what lost him the championship last year or what we've seen from him this year. I mean, we saw it in Bahrain yet again. We saw in Bahrain that he spun basically because he was under pressure from Hamilton again. And in this instance where he was in the lead, he was only, what, you know, so lap 48, so another 28 laps from the end of the race, he still cost himself the victory by making a mistake. So... That's, I think, the big thing. That's probably the broader issue that we've got to be looking at from an individual standpoint is the fact that Vettel keeps making these mistakes and whether if this continues to happen, then even in the future, whether it's next year or whatever, is he going to win a world championship this way? Because you've got Lewis Hamilton on one side of the park who hasn't really made any mistakes at all for the last few years and... He's sort of just capitalising off the back of whether it's Ferrari's mistakes as a team or Vettel's mistakes as a driver. He's capitalising off that, you know, on the days where Mercedes aren't the strongest. And that's where you win world championships, is to be that all-rounder. But as far as a stewarding, um, the stewarding side of this is concerned, adjudication in world sport is not perfect. But... Are we to blame the refs for making the problems? On certain occasions, yes, you know, you can, and, you know, and football co- codes and stuff like that with where they have video technology and cricket, where they have video technology to um, double check these decisions and whatnot. And in you could say, you could argue that stewarding in motorsport as well, they review video before they hand down a penalty, of course, you know, they look at different angles before doing it. So... Is it the ref's fault? No, definitely not. It's um, mostly to do with the way that the rules are written and the refs are just giving their best interpretation of the rules and then applying the penalty um, accordingly. You know, it could have been even more ridiculous and they could have said, look, you know, Seb, because of your post-race antics as well where, you know, he parked his car in the park firme for the guys who don't finish in the top three, then decided to go off to his hospitality unit and not proceed to the post-race interviews, and then also almost boycotting the podium as well. You know, if, if he did boycott the podium, then that would have resulted in further sanctions. But yeah, you know, he came out and swapped the, um, the place markers. He put the number two ahead of Hamilton's car and put the number one ahead of the blank space where his car should have been, you know, the stewards in the FIA could have easily have come out and given him some kind of sanction for that too and said, look, you got a grid penalty for the next race or something. So it was kind of the best penalty to give out and I think that's where it should just be, it should be nipped in the bud and the story should be finished, you know. Um, for Vettel moving forward, it's just a matter of not, making mistakes I guess that's that's probably the end of the day for him individually that's probably what he's got to do but overall as well it's not a good look for F1 I'll admit that and you know but at the end of the day stewarding is necessary to keep everyone in line I mean if they weren't if there wasn't anyone enforcing the regulations we'd have like a Mad Max style championship or Mario Kart or something I know that would be entertaining for everyone but at the end of the day, drivers, you know, if you're given an inch, they're going to take a mile. So they need stewards to keep everyone in line. They need these regulations. But 
how these regulations are framed, maybe that's something that they've got to look at. But as far as, and also offering fans and everyone else who's watching the sport a better understanding of these regulations too. Like, it's so, given the whole case-by-case judgment thing, it's so open to interpretation, everything. So, you know, as even though we know that a five-second penalty is the most lenient that they have in their rule book, um, you don't think of that incident with Hamilton and Vettel and think that a five-second penalty would be applied. Whereas in other sports, it's sort of clear-cut, just watching it from a spectator's uh, spectator view that, oh, if this happens, this is going to be the penalty that's applied, you know, or, you know, this is what punishment's going to be he's going to be sin-binned or he's going to be given a red card or she's going to be given out, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in F1, it's not the case. So maybe, as Ross Braun has come out and said as well, um, perhaps it's a matter of just communicating that in a better way. You know, we'll wait and see if, if they do do that and whether it makes uh, makes an effect because... The way it is, it just seems like the whole case by case thing as well. That it seems very different when you when you look back. You know, I mean, someone on one of the forums have brought up Lewis Hamilton cutting the Nouvelle Chicane in two thousand and sixteen, which was almost deemed similar to what's happened here with Vettel and Hamilton in Canada, and basically that was to deny Daniel Ricciardo the victory of that race in twenty sixteen. Hamilton ended up winning as a result of that. Should he have been penalised five seconds as well as Vettel was? Um, you could also ask the question of whether, if this was a midfield battle, would the penalty have been different? Would it have been more severe, given that this is at the front of the field and we're fighting for a win here? You know, if it was Grosjean versus um, Perez, for example, would it have been like a 10-second penalty or a drive-through penalty or something like that? You know, that's sort of... The questions that you're left asking afterwards, it's not as clear-cut, but as far as agreeing with what happened in Canada, I totally stand behind what the stewards made decision-wise. I don't condone all the criticism that they've copped because they're only doing their job and they're following the rule book that's been put in front of them and then they apply the penalties based on what's in there, you know, and, you know, Manuele Piro, who is the, the, the chief steward in this instance, he's a racer as well. So he's not going to be, he's not some lawyer trying to, you know, just punish everyone. Like he looks at this from a, you know, we talk about the spirit of racing and, you know, how this is penalties and whatnot is against it. You know, I'm sure he probably didn't want to penalise it either. But, you know, in the end, the decision had to be made and whatnot. So, yeah, all these... Um, ex-racers or current racers coming out on social media and saying oh it's against the spirit of racing and everything this is what where it comes back to the fact that it is necessary to have someone regulating and enforcing the rules because you know if it's all going to be um if it's going to be a free-for-all you know barrio kart style then what's the point because there's going to be lots of there's going to be more injustices that way let's put it than if there was stewarding because stewarding is just so as i said you haven't we haven't really seen much of the stewards this year apart from like a few instances in the midfield and whatnot so yeah this is probably only one of few times where whoever's finished in the lead of a race has 
not won the race because of a penalty. So, you know, we look back to 2008, I think it was, with Lewis Hamilton in Spa, it happened to him. So they asked him post-race, is this a bit of a poetic justice for you going back to 2008 and whatnot, given that, I guess, where we are in 2019, it's sort of irrelevant, but it's it's a bit funny in that instance. But yeah, you know, um, stewarding is important. I think everyone should respect the stewards you know they should respect the referees um in whatever sport you're watching because you know they're there to enforce the rules and to make sure that everyone is safe and um you know set an example that way so yeah that's all i can say um that's all i can think of to to talk about in this discussion because yeah it's sort of even still after a few days now since it happened, people are still talking about it and it's going to be something that's talked about, I think, all season with that, you know, I guess as far as the spectacle is concerned, yeah, we sort of didn't get that grandstand finish we had expected, but now the onus is on Ferrari to come back in the next race and be a lot stronger. The onus is on Sebastian Vettel to come back on the next race and be stronger as well because... You know, you're not going to mull over the fact that you were stripped of a win or you lost the win or whatever. You need to come back stronger the next time out and um, prove that the form that they had in Montreal wasn't just a one-off and that um, they can actually challenge Mercedes in the future. So yeah, that's um, it for F1 this week, actually. So I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of opinions still floating around about that you Feel free to chip in on our social media profiles. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Twitter is at um, Hit the Apex Media, and you can find us on Facebook. Um, just type in Hit the Apex Podcast, and we will be there. And so, yeah, let's talk about the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So, this weekend, obviously, the third leg of the Triple Crown. Um, of motorsport we've had the indy 500 we've had the monaco grand prix it's time for the endurance spectacle that is le mans and i always love le mans um regardless of how the field looks it's just one of those events that you know endurance racing it's it's a festival basically i i'd love to go still i keep talking about it you know a trip to france and whatnot and to le mans this time of year would be perfect for the whole week you know stay the festival atmosphere and everything so what's it going to be like this year so giving you some context of course this is the final race of the wec super season so the 2018-2019 super season which has featured not one but two editions of the 24 hour of le mans we've got titles up for grabs in the World Endurance Championship, so you've got Toyota, both their cars duking it out in LMP1, Porsche in the GTE Championship, so in both GTE AM and GTE Pro, on the cusp of uh, securing titles, and then of course you've got three different teams in the LMP2 category, um, which are fighting at the moment, so that seems like the closest championship as far as, um, you know, a, a result for either of these teams could could win them the championship so you're going to be probably paying more attention to this category if you're looking at the the championship as a whole so 
they're the Signatech Alpine team, the Jackie Chan DC team, and also Dragon Speed, which uh, Mr. Pastor Maldonado is a part of. So imagine that, Pastor Maldonado winning a um, LMP2 championship. That would be quite something, actually. He's paired and partnered with Anthony Davidson, I think, as well. So, you know, for Davidson to win a second championship in WEC would be quite something, even though it's not the LMP1 top-tier um uh, top tier thing so 26 points is actually spread across those um, three di- teams those three cars that are in contention and with Le Mans being a double points event or whatever or extra points they get it's 38 points for the victory so you'd think that a win could do it for either one of them depending on how the other team gets the results so Let's talk about what the race will look like, or you never know how Le Mans going to look like because it's so um, 24 hours, there's a lot that can happen, uh, it's very much a team effort given that most teams will have three drivers, so how do all three of the drivers fa- fare, how do the pit crews fare as well, fatigue is a big thing, and this is what I love about endurance racing is that you may not be the fastest overall, but the fact that you've been able to line up your ducks throughout the race, avoid incident, you get through the night stint as well, you get through the weather, if it rains, which we saw in practice actually last night and during qualifying as well, um, you know, you're the one who survived in the end. That's what endurance racing is, is that you were the one who... You know, being fast is only one facet of it. It's about nailing all those different areas to be able to come and win. So that's why you sort of put a question mark over whether it'll be a stroll in the park for Toyota, uh, Fernando Alonso and the number eight crew looking for back-to-back wins, of course. But, you know, what if both Toyotas decide to crash? You know, what if they both have to retire from the race, which is probably the worst possible result you could look at it in endurance race you know you can obviously you do have time to repair your car get it back out there in circulation and still score points but if the Toyotas by any chance are out of that top battle then you would look at your other LMP1 um, contenders to to perhaps go for the win for the outright win of course you know you look at you'd probably look at Rebellion you'd look at SMP Racing as well who have some solid lineups so it just depends on what happens with Toyota, but if everything goes well, then you'd expect Toyota 7 or Toyota number 8 to, to go in for the win, so um, yeah, no no surprise there, given that they're on a different spectrum as your standard LMP1 contenders, so th- for those who don't know, the difference with between the LMP1 class itself is it's almost split into two classes, so you've got the LMP1 hybrids, which, you know, Toyota's the only... Um, team now that do the hybrid thing in LMP1 obviously because we had Audi we had Porsche leave um, at the end of last year or Audi the year before so Toyota are the sole runner and with the hybrid systems you you just got an advantage in generally you know power advantage more downforce whereas the normally aspirated LMP1 um, non-hybrids you know they're just basically dealing with a, a stock standard engine and um, I don't think they're even turbocharged either. I think they're normally aspirated. So, yeah, you know, it's totally a totally different ballpark for those guys. 
So the excitement really, as I said before, will be amongst the LMP2 field, the GTE fields as well. So when you look to GTE Pro, which is probably my favorite category in the WEC at the moment, it's kind of sad that it's going to be the last race for Ford and BMW as uh, manufacturers. So Ford actually are going to keep their GTs in the category as customer cars next year. So that'll be, oh, well, this year when the se uh, 1920 season starts or whatever. Um, so that'll be good to see. But for BMW, it's kind of disappointing that they only contested one season with that M8 GTE car that they developed. I think it's still going to be an IMSA championship or maybe not. It's going to be an IMSA. So that's a bit disappointing for those guys to, to bow out only after a season. They didn't really have the greatest seasons, of course. It's a bit, you know, GTE is always a, there's a lot of contention with uh, balance of performance and everything and you know for those who don't know balance of performance is basically um, a tool used to keep the um, teams on an even playing field so if you know because all the cars are so different and they're basically modified off their road going counterparts whether it's your Aston Martin Vantage your BMW M8 the Ferrari 488 or Porsche with their 911 you know, balance and performance is to try and keep things on an even playing field. So if Porsche are deemed to have a power advantage, then they're going to have their, you know, some ballast or something added to to restrict their, or they're going to have some restrictors added to their engine to keep the power um, on par with the rest of the field. So, you know, Aston Martin probably have suffered of as a result of it this whole WEC season because of their new car that they've debuted and they've ended up uh, not having a great time as a result because they've, the balance performances hasn't gone into their favour. Same thing for Ford as well, I think, this year has not been too great as far as that, and that's why Porsche has sort of had that universal car and they've been a lot more successful as a result. So no surprise to see Porsche and Ferrari at the top of the GTE Pro standing. So, um, but though it is anyone's race Le Mans so just as I said it depends on who survives at the end of the 24 hours it would be great to see one of those guys who are bowing out whether it's Ford or BMW to win Aston Martin as well you know could um, could they uh, break through and win a race as well this season to cap off what's been a bad season so it would be great to see uh, that sort of eventuate but Porsche you know again they're probably the class of the field as always when it comes to GTE and after they left LMP1 you know they've been sort of doing it in the the GTE class so that's been good to see for them and they'll have four cars of course with two of their IMSA uh, contenders coming in as well you know with the likes of um, Earl Bamba, Nick Tandy, uh, Lawrence Ventura as well there so you know this is one thing that I really love about Le Mans and everyone can get behind Le Mans as well is the the driver lineups across the whole field is just, it's something to salivate over, you know, whether you got Fernando Alonso in LMP1 with Toyota, Stoffel Van Dorn's in there as well, um, then you look at P2, you've got guys like, uh, I think Jean-Eric Verne's in P2, or he might be in P1, but yeah, Jean-Eric Verne's there, you've got Pastor Maldonado, Anthony Davidson, then in GTE, you've got, you know, guys like um, Scott Dixon and you know Ryan Briscoe coming over in the Ford for the Ford camp um, who are your IndyCar well Dixon's your only 
full-time IndyCar person, but Briscoe obviously there as well. You've got the Corvette runners as well who've got good lineups. Uh, you've got, yeah, you know, just a solid roster of drivers across the board. So I was a bit gutted actually to hear that Craig Lowndes, um, who was trying to get a Le Mans drive this year, didn't end up being su- successful. So you'd hope that he's uh, he can make it onto the grid for next year in one of the GTE cars. So yeah, you know, it's just something that you look, whether it's the cars, the drivers, it's always just something really, really good is Le Mans. Looking at the future, though, so I also wanted to take this opportunity to just talk about sports car racing in general and the future. Um, no, nothing's been set yet for the hypercar regulations, which I have talked about, you know, this year and last year about what is going to succeed the prototype um, category in the long term for sports car racing. And it's a bit disappointing that they haven't really. Um, mapped out or set anything in stone yet for those uh for those regulations and you can talk about you know f1 as well not having um done anything about like or not had anything in concrete yet for their 2021 regulations too so everything is sort of at a, at a standstill but um we're gonna see success ballast tested in gtem for the next um super season so success ballast is um, as i explained with ballast it's used to to in a way nerf cars if they're too good success ballast is basically the same thing but it's going to be done after every race so whoever wins a race they're going to have success ballast put on their car so that they're going to have to work a bit harder to try and maintain the consistency of winning but then it also gives the guys who weren't as competitive in that particular race a chance for the next race to be up there so they use this in British touring car racing I'm not I really don't like like ballast is okay you know balance and balance of performance you know on its day can be good but success ballast just seems you know ridiculous because the way it's about who's the best overall but if someone and i had this whole rant or whatever about the ford mustang and supercars you know i mean at the end of the day they've done a the manufacturer or the team they've done a great job to deliver a winning package why are they being punished for being successful you know let's in that instance let's talk about success ballast and f1 and then mercedes wouldn't have won five championships in a row soon to be six so um it's probably not the best thing but as far as delivering close racing and to keep the competition sort of tightly compressed it's you know the only thing they can do so whether the top flight category whether it's going to be the hypercars or some kind of prototypes they've talked about the daytona prototypes that race in the imsa category in america potentially even becoming a top flight um top flight uh category for the world endurance championship um you know whether they implement that in that you know we'll have to wait to see but yeah you know hopefully I really was a fan of when they announced that they're going to be doing these hypercar type regulations and hopefully they get something nailed sooner or later because I think there's a lot of potential because fans are going to love it a lot more when they see cars that they see in everyday life. I mean, you know, who sees a McLaren Senna every day, for example, but you know what I'm getting, like cars that are relatable for 
fans in particular younger fans who can put up a poster of a McLaren Senna or a Ford GT or a Lamborghini Ferrari La Ferrari or whatever and to have the same car as the race car as well is what is going to get people more relatable like don't get me wrong these prototypes that they race with at the moment especially the hybrid ones that they had you know Toyota Audi Porsche they were just totally different beasts and I just love how how complex and how you know great they were you know as far as being the technology the technological push and everything was just on another planet and then when Porsche did the whole unrestricted uh, 919 the 919 tribute thing and went out and obliterated a few lap records around the world that was just goes to show you how if it wasn't for the rules and for balance of performance and everything an unrestricted hybrid LMP1 car is you know it could be as fast as a Formula 1 car on its day so yeah it's just something that is just from a technological standpoint and you know that I'm a bit of a, a nut when it comes to that sort of stuff it is just something to sit there and go wow that this is how far we've come as far as automotive technology is concerned and the fact that racing is still the forefront of development as far as automotive technology it's something that as a motorsport fan everyone can be proud of you know we talk about f1 at the moment and the fact that you know the spectacle side is suffering because of penalties blah 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 you can still appreciate what they're doing from a technological standpoint with the hybrid power units you know the fact that the cars are so efficient as well you know i wish these things were these things were brought into um into the light a bit more than all the controversies are because it really doesn't do the category any justice and you know at the end of the day Sebastian Vettel made a mistake <laughs> just try to to twist the knife a little bit more but um yeah you know that's what I look forward to when we talk about the hybrid sorry the hypercar regs is that you know it's the cars that you can drive you can buy if you're a billionaire or whatever if you're Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark um but still it's the cars when you look at them they're going to be relatable which is going to make it more exciting for people watching so yeah that's the future for that and you know we also have the discussion about hydrogen as well so garage 56 this year which is sort of that development um area of the 24 hours of Le Mans they're going to have a hydrogen car that's going to cut some laps across the weekend as well so whether hydrogen power is something that takes over endurance racing sports car racing some whispers about bmw potentially in 2021 or 2022 look to return to wec but with a hydrogen powered car as well so it was funny during the commentary um for practice last night they were talking about you know whether we'll get to a stage where you know we'll be powering these cars with banana peels like back to the future you know that would be quite exciting to see but um you know the whole idea of relatability and um, having marks that people uh, marks that people can recognize and relate with well not relate with as such again the whole billionaire thing but marks that people can recognize and then say right you know that's a Lamborghini that's a Ford that's a Ferrari um, that's quite important and you know we had the trailer for this film 
drop um, a couple of weeks ago ahead of the event in Le Mans, Ford versus Ferrari, which I'm totally psyched and excited for. I mean, it's coming out in November, I think, so I just can't wait for, can't wait to see that. The whole story behind the 1966 um, Le Mans 24-hour Ferrari, they were the dominant force at the time, and Ford were basically... Uh, given a blank check or Ford, Henry Ford II wrote a blank check to Carroll Shelby who after that became one of the most successful designers of you know road cars and race cars of all time to be played by Matt Damon in this one and uh, Ken Miles who was the driver for Ford that year in the winning car played by Christian Bale so I'm really looking forward to the delivery of that performance by Christian Bale, who's been pretty solid in the last few, you know, pretty much all his films, he's been quite solid. I haven't seen the one with him as Dick Cheney yet, um, but I'll get around to it eventually. But yeah, no, this one will be really good. But again, you know, going back to relatability and everything, the reason why, you know, we have these Le Mans icons that we do today is because they're all marks that, you know, they do road cars as well and Ford because of the success that Ferrari were having, Ford wanted to do that as well. And, you know, they basically came out and comprehensively beat Ferrari for the next four years with their Ford GT, which then went on to be a road car as well, where you still see that these days, and that Ford GT road car of today is what the basis of the GTE pro car in the... Um, in IMSA and also in uh, WEC, that's the basis of what you see there. So whether these sort of cars sort of come back and come back as the top tier in endurance racing in the World Endurance Championship, that would be so good. You want to see Ford again versus Ferrari for the outright win of Le Mans. That would be something spectacular to see Ford with their GT take on the Ferrari, La Ferrari or whatever hypercar that Ferrari come up with in the near future, you know, and then you can have people like McLaren there, Lamborghini, Koenigsegg even, who's a modern example of a hypercar um, hypercar giant, so yeah, <laughs> that's what gets me excited about the hypercar regulations, but also the future of endurance racing, but going back to the movie anyway, you know, it's great to see that Hollywood's adapting this particular narrative, you know, because endurance racing doesn't really get much uh, attention apart from, you know, hardcore motorsport fans who love sports cars and whatnot and you know you think you look at the narrative you read the narrative um you can do it on wikipedia if you want or if you're a bit more vested you know go get some books or some online articles about it but the way in which it all came about is quite fascinating and the fact that ford then after that went on to win the next four le mans back to back is something that you know it's a great one of Ford's greatest achievements as an automaker and taking on Ferrari, who were the the juggernauts at the time in in um, the top flight of endurance racing at at particular Le Mans, which is sort of the benchmark for these manufacturers when it comes to sports car racing. So yeah, it's um, going to be an exciting one. Directed by the same guy who did Logan, if you like Logan, the uh, final film in the Wolverine series you know it was a dark and you know very macabre um, dystopian future and wolverine logan a washed up alcoholic basically try to humanize him totally up my alley that um it was a good film so hopefully yeah um this uh, ford versus ferrari film will be just as good um 
Ford versus Ferrari, I'm kind of the title I think I'm a bit skeptical on. I think they could have come up with something a bit more exciting, but yeah, you know, still it's hopefully it's gonna be a good film to, to look forward to. But yeah, that's all I have for Le Mans this year. I don't know if I'm gonna watch all of it. I mean, the last couple of years I think I did the no, not last. Well, last year I definitely did. I think about twenty hours. I watched twenty hours worth of it, um, and had some sleep in the end too. And obviously, the end does clash with the Barcelona or the Catalan Moto GP race as well. So, I'm gonna have to whip out the two screens. But yeah, I think given that Toyota might be in a position to win the race hands down this year, it might not be worth watching the race in its entirety, but, you know, I'm sure I'll be keeping tabs on it too, so exciting times, and yeah, next week I will come back and um, wrap things up for you from the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Now, I know I'm getting close to the hour mark, it's probably the longest one I've done this year so far, I've had a good run as far as... um you know, not having a sore throat or feeling ill and stuff like that. Um, so let's press on quickly. And I know I promised last week that I would talk a little bit about the Cricket World Cup. Um, and I will only talk about it for a little bit so I don't go too over time. But you got to say so far, rain in England has dominated the entire World Cup. I mean, how many games I think we've missed as a result of rain? You know, it's meant to be summer over there for crying out loud. And They've got the same temperature as we do here in Melbourne. Like it was yesterday, I was saying it's 17 degrees here in Melbourne. It's raining. Same temperature was over there in Taunton where they had Australia play Pakistan. Of course, Australia winning that game in the end after Pakistan did sort of make some kind of a comeback. But their batting again sort of uh, was what lost it for them. But you've got to say at this stage, it's a four-horse race. You know, they've got a whole different format this year with no pool games it's all just like a round robin style thing and whoever finishes in the top four goes straight to the semis and then of course um, you know that determines who plays in the final so after you know there's been a bit of disparity with who's played how many games like India came in late and has only played two games but they've won two from two so far so they sit in fourth on the table England the hosts they're two from one uh, so sorry, they've won two, lost one out of three. Australia three wins from one loss, and New Zealand they've won three from three. So they're the current top four. It's likely that they're going to remain in that position. Um, Sri Lanka they're on four points as well, even though they've only just won the one game, having played four because of the rain sort of eliminating them. West Indies are smoky potentially to make it into the top four, but. It's going to require a few wins from them to do so. Pakistan as well, um, eighth on the table at the moment. They've got one win from two losses. You know, they'll require at least four wins from the next five games that are remaining in their um, in their round robin to be able to be a contender for the finals. So don't rule them out, but you'd say that easily. South Africa, Afghanistan, unfortunately, um, they're both zip and three lost three games so far um, they're not going to be um, contenders you'd have to say South Africa with an extra they've got one point as a result of their game being washed out against um, I think it was the West Indies or Bangladesh the other day so that's why they've got that extra point there so yeah I'll probably talk about it a bit more next time if we've had uh, any significant 
movements or any controversies. I'm sure it's it's always good. Quick update with the NBA finals as well. Um, it's 3-2 at the moment in Toronto's favour. They have to go back to Golden State um, to... Um, to Golden State to play game six should be all wrapped up there I hope Um, uh, unfortunately I won't be able to watch the game because I'll be at work it's just the way that this schedule scheduling works if it was on today it would be fine I could watch it right now but um, unfortunately it's not the case and Kevin Durant of course he came back for game five scored 11 points but then injured injured his Achilles and you know that's pretty much the nail in the coffin for Golden State like you could say he made the difference for them to make it through to Game 6, give him a, a chance, but uh, Toronto probably the um, better team at the moment. And they lost by a point in the end anyway in Game 5, so expect them to get the job done in Game 6. So, yeah, that'll be about it. So thanks for tuning in this week. Of course, as I said before, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook um, at Hit the Apex media on twitter and hit the apex podcast on facebook and the podcast itself you can listen to on spotify and itunes so make sure you hit that subscribe button and i'll be back next week uh, for more motorsport talk so thanks for tuning in and see you then